0: I appreciate the history involved here, but um, it's not like an election is a -a once-in-a-lifetime event. Well, there's never been one here before. What do you mean? Well, everyone's just always wanted Holling to be mayor, so... Well, Holling's always just been mayor. You mean there's never been a vote? Uh Uh-uh. Ever? Nope. Unbelievable. I've discovered the brigadoon of electoral politics. So what am I gonna do now, Dr. Fleshman? By what? My tick. vote, it should clear up Tuesday. Huh.
1: It's the political episode of Northern Exposure, and it's incredibly good timing because tonight is the eve of the South Carolina primary and four days off from Super Tuesday.
2: That's right. When we're recording this episode, uh, it's nighttime. That's right. And tomorrow is the South Carolina primary. So it's uh, getting exciting, I guess, for for this Democratic primary.
1: Yeah, I'm matching Ed's excitement in real time.
2: It's pretty cool. It's perfectly fitting time to be watching this episode. Like you said, you're matching the excitement. It definitely makes you feel good and excited about uh, being an American, I guess. <laughs> no,
1: definitely. Um, it's such a nice treat to be watching a political episode right now because I totally forgot that today's episode was called Democracy in America because right now at least for me, and presumably for you, Lee, once we're around the same age, we're into a really heated political environment right now. I was too young to appreciate 2008's election, where the Democratic field was wide open, and we didn't know exactly who would win the nomination. So it was really exciting uh, at the time. But in 2016, I felt like we didn't have that. There was only two candidates, uh, three if you include uh, O'Malley, but not a lot of people did. So... Right now, I'm all politics (laughs) 24/7, right now, and joy becometh to me that even the podcast I'm recording is about politics.
2: Yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, obviously on topic. Uh, But I think one thing we can take from this episode, just sort of overall, is you know, this episode deals with a very, you know, at least in Joel's perspective, like the outcome of this election is not uh, a crazy, of crazy consequence. You know, it's it's just a small mayoral election in a small town. But still, uh, you can see how that can be exciting. You know, the show makes that um, as dramatic and exciting as possible. And you can really, uh, you know, appreciate the power and magnitude of even the smallest of elections. It's um, something to be proud of, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, I would say, yeah, I would say the best thing about being an American,
2: voting. It's a good call. Yeah. It's your civic duty. So what Okay, so what are we talking about, Charles?
1: Oh, right, right, right. Okay. So we're not NPR Politics Podcast. We <laughs> are the Northern Overexposure Podcast, where we overanalyze the television series Northern Exposure. My name is Charles. I've never seen the show. I'm seeing it with fresh eyes, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee.
2: That's right. I've seen the show quite a few times. So this is sort of like me introducing the show to you, Charles, but also, you know hashing over the details, overanalyzing, as you said, and sort of getting your outsider perspective. Uh, but also I should mention that part of our mission statement for this podcast is to introduce the show to a new viewer. You know, obviously, Charles, this is the first time you're seeing this episode. But also later on, at the end of the episode, we have uh, a guest analyst who's going to come on who has never seen the show before. And uh, we get their fish out of water take on this episode i mean you you've seen every episode leading up to this but they've only seen this one episode
1: yeah i am very curious as to what they're going to feel about this episode presumably they're going to know that it's not a political show that they're watching Uh, this happens to be the political episode
2: probably hopefully so we'll we'll see i guess uh when we hear their commentary so before we get into the plot of this episode, uh, once again, it's called Democracy in America. It's the 15th episode in the third season. And this is one of the episodes uh, of Northern Exposure that was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Individual Achievement and in Writing in a Drama Series. We mentioned on the last episode that uh, this year, the, the 44th Emmy Awards there were three nominations for Northern Exposure uh, out of the five in the category. This is one of them, uh, alongside Burning Down the House, which was the last episode, and Soulmates, uh, which was the Christmas episode. That's the one that actually took the award.
1: Mm, okay. I think that I don't know which one of the three I would say is my favorite, actually. I, I guess maybe this one. This one and Burning Down the House are pretty good contenders for me.
2: That's a good point. What would be my favorite out of the three? I don't know. I feel like there are so many great episodes, uh, great writing, you know, examples in this series, uh, in this season. But I don't know if I would necessarily nominate these three They are, in fact, some of the most memorable episodes. You know, last episode, it's the one with the fling, you know, the giant trebuchet catapult. This episode is uh, the politics episode. You know, it's very standout from the rest of the series. And uh, Soulmates, obviously, the Christmas holiday episode, they're all very memorable. But do they deserve the award over the other episodes in this season? I think if I had to pick, I might go with Soulmates. You know, it's... Not my favorite episode in this season, but it's pretty unique. You know, I guess they all are. Ah, It's hard to say. I don't know. Mm. I should say the writer credited for writing this episode is Jeff Melvoin, who had written one episode before for Northern Exposure. He wrote Dateline Sicily. Uh, but as we'll see, you know, as we get further into the series, he's, he's written a lot of my favorite episodes. So more to come.
1: Mm, Okay. Yeah, I like Dateline Sicily and I can kind of see how the writer for that episode has also written this episode. They're dealing with civic duty. Yeah. Um, A lot of concepts that are not especially only in Alaska, but seem to apply to
2: like news and journalism and international affairs. Like all of America
1: as a whole. Right. right, right. Yeah. Like it, it wasn't like character to character, I felt. It was more like a concept that they were trying to wrap around.
2: True. Yeah, that's a good point. So this episode begins with its opening gambit. Hauling is, you know, at the brick, tending bar, and Edna, a new character, Edna Hancock, enters. Uh, She's described as, I guess, sort of uh, another wealthy Sicilian. She owns 12,000 acres near uh, Maurice's land. Like, she's his neighbor apparently, even though they're what, like five miles apart or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just thought uh, it—it's important to bring up in this opening scene that sort of uh, is the catalyst of the conflict of the episode. Hollings' treatment of Edna—you know, of course—he's being very friendly, very accommodating. Uh, he offers her this this special booze that she enjoys to drink. I, I forgot what. What do you remember? What? He offers her to drink. I didn't really
1: get a good look at it, but I'm guessing that it's some type of scotch, maybe Glenfiddich.
2: Right. He says like single malt. So it, it seems a little fancy. And, you know, as I said, he seems to be very accommodating, uh, very nice to Edna, but you can tell her reaction to him. Uh, there's something There's something wrong. But even on top of that, if you really, at least for me, when I sort of like deep dived into uh, analyzing this scene, it kind of felt like he's treating her more like an outsider, not a regular, you know? I mean, he's, he's definitely being nice, but it doesn't seem like a person he would hang out with. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I would agree. Like, she's not... And from all I can see on this episode, she doesn't even come outside that often. It's yeah. not often that she socializes with folks. And in fact, she even has a line that says, I don't even like talking to people. Like, I'm yeah, a private person. true. Entirely. But she comes into the bar because she wants a stop sign to be installed.
2: That's right. Yeah, she is actually announcing that she's going to run as an opponent for the mayoral election. You know, something that apparently has not happened in Sicily for 10 years, as we heard in the opening bite. But yeah, she she wants a stop sign. Apparently, she brought this up to Holling years ago, and he ignored it. He ignored the request, and now she's going to take matters into her own hands and she's going to become mayor and i don't don't know do mayors i guess get to choose where the stop sign go
1: well this is what i thought was really interesting do you know how stop signs are installed
2: not at all please uh, enlighten us
1: So it's actually different from every state and county and or parish that you live in. But generally, you would contact city council members. You would either email them or write them a letter or actually even just go to their office and make your case to them. Right. And for a second, I thought, well, maybe Sicily doesn't have any city council members. But Joel later in the episode says distinctly, well... All this does, like this mayoral election, is that the mayor goes with the city council members. They go get drunk and then they go home.
2: Oh, right. They yeah. talk
1: about taxes once a year. So, so they, they do have is. city council. Yeah. So I don't know why she's raising the issue so much with hauling, unless somehow in the charter of Sicily, the mayor decides where the stop sign goes.
2: Yeah. You know, you're right. It sounds, it makes sense that city council would be the body that determines you know, stop signs and their erection. Uh, But as you also just mentioned, you know, it sounds like the city council probably doesn't do much of anything. They just get drunk. So it seems that all the power goes to the mayor and even still the mayor doesn't seem to have a lot of power. Uh, So maybe what's really happening here is that no one really has any power to erect a stop sign. And uh, Edna just wants to be mayor so that she can uh, create that, that um, authority, I guess.
1: Do you think that Edna actually wants to run for mayor because she has a civic duty within her? Like, because she has been screwed over, she wants to ensure that other people don't get screwed over? Or is she simply doing this because she wants to give the finger to Hauling?
2: I I think she makes a more compelling opponent if, uh, if you think of her as, as someone who, you know, really wants to make change, you know? And ultimately, though, I think she's just going to, She's trying to give the finger to Hauling. There's a scene towards the very end of the episode, uh, which we can talk about in detail later, but a scene between her and Maurice where I think it's sort of made clear that Maurice recognizes uh, what what we're talking about here. The fact that, uh, you know, it appears that even if Edna's not trying to do this, you know, she's about to enact some uh, sort of butterfly effect moment that that is a catalyst for change in the future but edna says you know i'm just gonna get my stop sign and then i'm done Mm. right doesn't she say something like that yeah no
1: absolutely they have a little conversation which we can get into more in depth later on i was looking into stop signs because i never actually paid much attention to them and it didn't occur to me that there's actually detriments to having stop signs Okay. So apparently, according to some studies, one done by UT Texas, I believe, they were saying that stop signs in neighborhoods are actually sometimes more dangerous because when people see stop signs and they stop and then they continue forward, they actually increase past what the speed limit is in order to make up the lost time that they had in stopping. Wow,
2: yeah, yeah, I can kind of see that making sense.
1: Yeah, they said that like the actual implementation should be yield signs and not stop signs.
2: That's interesting, you know? Wow. The the bus stop uh, where I grew up as a kid, uh, all throughout elementary school, maybe even through middle school, it was a stop sign right on that uh, corner. And then in high school, it changed to a yield sign. Mm -hmm. So that's already an example of, uh, you know, I don't know when this study was uh, done, you know, the UT University of Texas, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know when that was published, but... uh, I definitely saw that sort of implementation happening in my childhood. Mm.
1: Do you think there's any deeper meaning to it being a stop sign that they want installed?
2: Oh, that's a good little uh, detail to notice. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting because if we think about, I know know we're trying to look at the episode in order, but if you think about the scene with Maurice and Edna at the end, Uh, You know, Maurice's fear is that Edna is about to, what does he say? She's opened Pandora's box. She's about to let something new in. So a stop sign seems sort of like the opposite of that as a symbol. I would say uh, maybe like uh, a traffic light, like, you know, green means go. That is more of an appropriate symbol for what's happening here, at least in Maurice's viewpoint. Did you have any um, interpretation of it as a stop sign?
1: No, I tried to think of one. And I think if I spent more time on this and I went to bed, I mean, mean, we could figure something out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I could get some metaphor. But at the top of my head, I can't think of why other than it's an ordinary object that a citizen would want installed. And you can see the merits to why it needs to be installed.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think they should have done a uh, traffic signal, not a not a stop sign. That would have been a stronger symbolic uh, metaphor. Or, you know.
1: <laughs> so the mayoral race plot is the main, I guess I would call it like the tree, like the trunk of the tree. Okay. But there's small little branches of it, and they're not very big branches because this is the chunk of the plot. But there is a small plot involving Joel and Maggie. Yeah them coming into ideological differences right there, which I kind of enjoyed. And I knew they were going to go there, but I'm glad that they did go there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. This this episode, unlike a lot of the others, it doesn't really have like ABC uh, plots. It's all pretty much focused around the election here. But, uh, but you also bring up a good point. There is a sort of romantic subplot, if you would call it that, you know. As usual with the Joel and Maggie characters, they're often pitted against each other or assigned uh, as, you know, group partners with each other to sort of work out their differences and uh you know, try to generate as much romantic tension as as possible.
1: So the mayoral race spreads all across town and everyone's wondering who to vote for and it gets Ed really concerned on who to vote for and he asks Maggie for help saying, "I've never voted before, who should I go for?" And Maggie gives them to saying like, well, you listen to their policies and then you go listen to their speeches. And then from there, that's you make an informed decision and vote on your candidate. And Joel, hearing that, disagrees. He says like, no, 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 no. You vote for a strong leader. And if you still don't have any idea who that is, then you just fall back on your party affiliation.
2: And this quickly snowballs into an argument between Joel and Maggie. They end up uh, walking out of the brick and and doing a very interesting walk and talk where, you know, Joel and Maggie sort of chastise each other for their backgrounds, for their political beliefs. Joel thinks Maggie suffers from some guilt from from growing up with money, so she votes uh, Democrat. And Maggie says Joel is running from his working class background. You know, he is Jewish, he's a doctor, but we learn from past episodes that he wasn't born to wealth, you know, he didn't grow up in a rich family necessarily. He's sort of a self-made man, I guess in the sense that Maurice might be, the same type. Uh anyway, Maggie accuses him of trying to escape his background and trying to pass himself off as something he's not, you know, he's trying to be the ideal rich person, you know, and and she claims that's like what a republican is.
1: Yeah. I found it very interesting that the, this is like what, 20 years into the future from here, <laughs> give or take. Um, thir- thir- we're 30, th- wait, 30 years. I'm yeah. sorry. Well, yeah, 30 years it's a into the future old this. And they're basically the same arguments that you can use nowadays. Like Joel uses the argument saying, I went to four years of medical school and then one year of internship, two years of residency. Nowadays, I'm pretty sure it's much longer. Than yeah. that, like You give away much more of your life than what Joel gave away in order to become a successful doctor. And Joel says at the end, like, I want my slice of the pie. I put in the work. I want my money, which is a valid argument that Joel was putting in. Now I'm not trying to get into a whole political debate on whether or not billionaires should exist or, you know, we distribution of wealth. I'm not trying to say <laughs> any of that. I'm just saying that it's classic that Joel would be that character. And I totally see him as a moderate Republican. And I see Maggie as uh the Democrat.
2: Yeah, I think uh, you know, at first I was a little confused because in a in a previous episode, Joel says he's a Republican. He doesn't really go too much into it, and I like that he didn't, but I was kind of um, interested about that. And and he brings it up in this episode that his viewpoints, um, he, he thinks it's very honorable and brave to have uh, a viewpoint that doesn't reflect your peers. I guess he's from New York, which is uh, probably more traditionally Democrat. I don't know if it was at the time, but at least it seems like his peers uh, did not agree with his political beliefs.
1: <laughs> There's a joke that I've always really liked where I think it was Pete Davidson who said it, and he's a really young guy. And he says, I don't know anything about politics. I just know that if I say I'm a Republican, my friends get mad at me.
2: <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so it makes sense. This this episode sort of clears that up and, and explains, you know, I don't know if it necessarily explains, but it, it definitely makes sense more to me now to see, you know, yes, that definitely makes sense that Joel is a Republican. I did want to mention, however, of course, there's nothing wrong with Joel uh, working his butt off, you know, in med school, you know, wanting his piece of the pie, as you said, I think as he says in this episode. Uh, but doesn't he also say something like he wants to charge whatever the market can bear and, you know, he, he just wants to make as much money as possible. He, he you know, his greed is showing a little.
1: Uh, slightly, I, there's two ways to interpret that. One is that like, yeah, it's very greedy to charge more than what you need to do. Um, you're simply taking, money away from other people, than you had to. And the other method of looking at it is saying like, well, that's a Republican belief. He is simply believing in a less regulation market. It's a free market in which he is able to charge whatever the market can bear, be that as it may. So Joel is assigning a price, the market will fall into accordance. If it is too high, then nobody will buy it. If it's too low, then, you know, Joel's losing our money. So he's going to find the most optimal path or the optimal pricing for his quote-unquote, product, which are his doctoral skills. So I can kind of see that falling in line being a Republican.
2: You're right. He didn't say he was going to charge more than is necessary. He says, you know, whatever the market would bear. So, you know, whatever he's allowed to gain, you know, that's what he worked for. He wants to gain that. So, you know, I'll I'll, I'll stop criticizing him so much. <laughs> I do love uh, the quote that he's given here in this episode. He says, there's nothing special or particularly ennobling about not having money. He also says, self-interest isn't a crime. You know, this is sort of his argument against, uh, you know, Maggie sort of beating him down, you know?
1: Yeah. No, No. No. that. Definitely. And that's played throughout the episode. And, yeah, and in American politics as well. It's like, where is the divide between being self-interested and caring for the well-being of everybody? I think someone town hall member says like do you believe that the stop sign is a jeffersonian or a hamiltonian approach (laughs) to your uh, policies and that's basically what he's trying to say it's like are we more for like a state's right every man for himself let me have my own rights or is it going to be a hamiltonian approach where the government can uh, be much more involved into your life in order to ensure that you will succeed um but you see some sort of control to the government, you know, it's been played since <laughs> Hamilton and Jefferson. It's being played at 1992 with this episode is airing and it's definitely being played in today's time.
2: I just want to say whenever that is brought up at the town hall, um, Ruth Ann, who is the moderator of this sort of like town hall debate, uh, she just tells the the person in the audience. She says, "Sit back down." You know, it's like that's such a stupid <laughs> question. It's like it's what a, a... Pre-
1: <laughs> it's a pretentious question. I'll give you that. In that, he could have worded it much <laughs> yeah. more simpler. But in my opinion, I don't think it's a bad question. It's
2: perhaps the most applicable question. You know, like we're we're talking about it now. If you have to uh, really dig into the terminology, that that's what you would say, I guess. But you know, just to cut through all of this this scene, you know, just between Maggie and Joel arguing out on the street, it, it just quickly shows how polarizing politics can be. And that's the thing that happens. That That's sort of what their plot line is all about, this episode. And, and that's kind of what you were bringing up earlier, why uh, it interests you. It, it just shows sort of this divide and, and how um, how critical it can be, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's built-in conflict right there. But I think the thing that's very interesting when you talk about politics in television shows is that very often than not, they're always going to come to a place in which the other side understands the other side. Very rarely do I see a television show in which one character will be like, wow, you were totally right. My way was stupid. <laughs> your, your ideology is right and I succeed everything to you.
2: Wait, I just I do just want to say, uh, yeah, art and politics like hardly ever mix and it's because of that you can't really make a compelling uh work of art or you know story if it's just like one way is right you know that's never usually the right answer i guess in in art but you say that in at the end of this episode it does uh, occur that way
1: no, no 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 i meant to say like it occurs in that they realize they have their differences. There's an ideological barrier between them in which they are probably never going to go past that. But Joel buys her a drink at the end. It's like, you know, I would still like to take you out. It doesn't really matter.
2: Oh, yeah, it's the perfect sort of ending. It's not saying, like, this side is better than the other or this side will win because of uh, X, Y, and Z. But it's uh, sort of uh, recognizing our differences and coming together, which is, which is nice.
1: Really quickly, since we're on those scenes. So in the scene before with Joel and Maggie, they're trying to set up the election room, like where they cast their ballots. Yeah. And because they're election commissioner and she is the chairman of the election commission. Yes, which we'll get into. <laughs> but Maggie wears a bluish green coat, but a blue shirt. Underneath, and Joel wears a red shirt. But at the end of the episode, Maggie is wearing a red coat, and I can't tell what Joel is wearing. Uh, I don't know if it's blue, but yeah, I do know he's wearing like so much. He's wearing a big
2: And
1: I thought that was a nice little detail to show that Joel's a Republican and Maggie is a Democrat, blue and red. But then at the end of the episode, she switches to red. Yeah, right there.
2: showing just you know, sort of. Re- a respect for the other person's uh, viewpoints, you know, and I think obviously you think of a politician wearing a blue tie, Democrat, you know, red tie, Republican, but uh, you know, oftentimes that that's not the case. You know, sometimes a Republican will wear blue or vice versa. You know,
1: mm-hmm. do you want to talk about how Joel became election commissioner?
2: Yeah, so that's sort of the next plot point in our chronology here. So Joel is visiting Ruth Ann's store. Actually, I forget why he's there.
1: He's to buy a dental floss.
2: Dental floss. Of course. Like, yeah, it's very throwaway, I think. He, he doesn't bring up uh, teeth or anything later on in the episode, does he?
1: No, I think it's for <laughs> personal use. Yeah, yeah
2: <laughs> it's very throwaway. But he does mention how he worked on Al D'Amato's campaign. I actually didn't know that politician. Do you know Al D'Amato? I think it's Al D'Amato. DeMott, sorry. This is yeah, probably no, okay. my autocorrect on my, <laughs> my note-taking app.
1: Yeah, so Joel volunteered for Al DeMott, which was a New York politician. He was a Republican, and he was a senator from 1981 to 1999. We were a little bit too young to know who Al was, but he was known for being an everyman. They kind of called him like a... I think, like, the Pothole Fixer, like, they had a nickname for him for that. And it was meant to be uh, derogatory, but he eventually embraced it because it's kind of a good title to have. It's like, I care about the citizens. Yeah. Now, Altamont held the second longest filibuster by reading the Columbia phone book. Wow. And he lost in 1998 in his Senate race to Chuck Schumer, senior Democrat, Senate Minority Leader.
2: Yeah, still here today. Interesting. It's... uh... Interesting in this scene, Joel mentions that when he was working for DeMott's campaign, someone got a hold of the, you know, the Democrat opponent, you know, their election schedule, and they were able to rip down all of the Democrats' signs and stuff like that and pull up, put up all the Republican stuff. Is that illegal?
1: That certainly sounds illegal. I'm not going to go on record and say it is illegal, you're but not that sounds a like something you can report to an actual yeah. election commissioner and they would take a look at that.
2: Yeah, Charles, you're not a lawyer, but, uh, but of course, yeah. <laughs> and it's funny that you mentioned, you know, you could report this to an election commissioner. Ruth Ruthann, um, after hearing that, she names Joel the Sicily election commissioner.
1: Yeah. She even gets some good digs at him. She calls him the Tammany Hall. What's that? That's like an old New York City political organization. Like, it it fell out of favor in the 1940s when they tried to take on FDR. But (laughs) they used to be like a huge, uh, what you would now call like, uh, I guess, like a special interest group, kind of. Not nearly as strong as that, but they usually decided who the Democratic candidate would be, the Democratic Party of the 1920s not the current iteration of the Democratic okay. Party. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, so Ruth Ruthann explains, you know, the duties of the election commissioner is that, you know, they, they oversee that everything is done properly and above board. Uh, you you know, you could say that Ruth Ruthann picked the wrong person to be the election commissioner, obviously someone who just admitted to, uh, you know, cheating, I guess, in the past. I don't, I don't know, again, I don't know <laughs> if it's illegal or not. I don't know if I can call it cheating. Uh, but, you know... You could also say that she's choosing to name Joel as the election commissioner as a punishment, you know, to teach him a lesson. You know, it, it's something that maybe he's done improperly in the past. And now that he's in a position of power, maybe he'll have some respect for it. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I, well, I thought that she gave him the election commissioner, job because he was an outsider.
2: Oh, interesting. Because he has sort of no horse in this game. Horse in this uh, race? Horse in this race. I keep <laughs> messing up that analogy on this podcast.
1: <laughs> you know, horses are used a lot in politics like as uh, analogies.
2: Like horse yeah? trading is another one. What's horse trading? It's
1: like when you um, want to trade position for position. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Well, to balance out the ticket, though, of this election commissioner is that Maggie is the chairman of the election commission.
2: Yeah, which basically means that I think uh, Ruthann says Maggie makes the arrangements and uh, the election commissioner, Joel, oversees the arrangements. Oh, no. Is that right? Or is the other way around? No, it's... no, it's the other way around because uh Maggie is sort of the one who oversees all of Joel's work. Like he has to get it approved by uh by Maggie, right? Something yeah, like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's how it goes, but honestly the way I read that scene was that it was circular in that they both had to go okay. with each
2: other. That makes it, it sense. Didn't to ma- it didn't
1: like no one had like power over the other. It was left very vague in the uh, <laughs> town charter. The
2: charter is what it's called. Yeah. Yeah, so whether or not I I thought it maybe was that Maggie has the power above Joel, but I also like your interpretation, which is probably correct, that they sort of have to get compliance from each other, which uh, is sort of our outcome at the end of the episode, as you mentioned, you know, when they sort of switch color coding. (laughs) <laughs> and uh Joel buys her a drink
1: oh wait hang on let 's let 's tie this together let's Let's do some neat okay little
2: transition? together, yeah, yeah. Transition.
1: <laughs> hang on, okay, so there 's a scene, the next scene between Maggie and Joel, where they discuss how they 're going to set up this uh voting area, and she kind of criticizes Joel on his appearance, saying that he wears ties, he has his clean cut appearance because he wants to give off the idea that he knows what's going on. He's not lost. right? And the way I interpreted it was that she's saying that appearances matter, which is why she cares so much what the polling station looks like. And I think maybe she's also hinting that character matters in the candidates.
2: Yeah, I really love that bite as well. I love the performance too, so I think we should play it real fast.
0: I'm not a shallow, insubstantial person just because I think appearances matter. They do matter.
2: And I agree. You know, whether or not you think the appearance of the polling station, you know, whether or not it's decorated, if it's really going to affect the vote or the voter, I think it's the principle involved. That's what Maggie is really focused on. I think there's definitely a lot of truth there. Um, But I like your interpretation as well, Charles, saying that perhaps she's talking also not just about the appearance of the polling station, but perhaps the character of the nominee?
1: Yeah, the candidate. candidate. Because there's one way to look at it where you just vote based on policy, but maybe the character is also largely influential on why you should vote for someone. So maybe someone holds the same positions as you, but he, you know, is an adulterer or he... Constantly cheats, uh, steals
2: money, blah, 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 blah. You have to be able Take to, to trust a candidate, I guess, is, is what Maggie might be saying.
1: Yeah, I think that trustworthiness is a highly sought-after trait for a politician to possess.
2: Yeah, and I think Maggie even says earlier in the episode uh, to Ed, we talked about this scene, but she says something like, you know, go with your gut, right? Doesn't she say that?
1: Yeah, she does. She says that even after all the policies and the speeches that you listen to, you have to eventually come down to whether or not you as a human being think that this is someone that you want to lead over you.
2: Yeah. And so that, you know, what we're tying it into is the idea that perhaps this soundbite, you know, appearances could also translate to sort of a gut reaction to a candidate. So actually the scene, I think right before that, We have Holling uh, getting shaved at the barber's. Uh, I think this happened in the last episode, in a very recent episode. He's always getting a shave, right? Yeah, I noticed
1: that. I wrote that down I said, Holling's (laughs) getting another shave? And it's a possibility he gets shaved often and we just don't see it.
2: (laughs) So he must not shave uh, at home. He just goes to the barber (laughs) all the time. But, you know, this begins sort of... Hollings' uh, process of going around town and sort of gauging uh, his constituents, right? So it seems that it's an easy win for Holling. He's been mayor for ten years; the people love him. But uh, somehow he starts to get the the memo, you know, that Edna might have uh, a lot more votes than he might expect. And I like the barber's um, sort of dialogue with Holling. He talks about, I think he flat out tells Halling that he's going to vote for Edna, right?
1: Yeah. He says that he's going to vote for Edna, but his wife still has his vote.
2: Yeah. He says his wife says, you can't trust women. That's why she's <laughs> going to vote for Holling. But I like the barber's reasoning. He says, uh, he equates it to a story. He says, for many, many years, he drove a Dodge. And he loved that car. And uh, when it crapped out, when it died on him, finally, after like a decade or more, uh, he went to the dealership uh, with the intention of getting another Dodge, the same car or you know the, the same uh, model make. And ultimately, he left the dealership uh, buying a Chevy because I think in the end, he just wanted some change. You know, I don't know if he says it that way, but that's his uh, rationale for why he can't He can't vote for Hauling again. Or not again, but why he doesn't want Holling to be mayor again.
1: Like, I think that story's nice in that if you went to an ice cream parlor and you always had vanilla ice cream, you're like, I'm gonna change it up. (laughs) I'm gonna have chocolate ice cream. It's like, all right, it's a new flavor. I get it, change is good. But in terms of politics, I find that to be a very strange reason. It's like, I just wanted to see what the already other party felt like. It's like no one does that. But I guess for a small stakes mayoral election in Sicily, like yeah, you might as well do that. Like well, what's the worst that's gonna happen? They're gonna hike up his tax rate by like forty percent? Like, no. Like it's probably gonna remain the same. <laughs> yeah. So once Holling realizes that he might not have all the votes that he needs in his pocket, he decides to go and negotiate with Edna at her house.
2: Yeah, I think uh, this is later used against him, but he doesn't want to go through the whole process of an election, so he offers her the stop sign up front. He's like, look... We don't need to do this. We don't need to go through this. I'll just give you the stop sign. Which we talked about earlier in the episode. It's like, why is Edna doing this? If she just wants the stop sign, uh, why didn't she accept this offer from hauling? And I think maybe the answer is, you know, she's just really ticked off. She wants to give him the finger and show him that, you know, it's his duty and he's neglecting it. So someone's got to do it if he's not going to do it.
1: Yeah. I like the look of this scene. I like the snow that's falling down. While they're having the conversation outside of her house.
2: I feel that's got to be real snow, right? Like that's what so, I was thinking too. Yeah, it's very heavy.
1: Okay, Lee, you work in film. So I have two questions regarding snow in film. Okay. Does the snow actually affect the sound? Like when they're out there filming? Because snow dampens noise. So did you have to like turn up the gauges on the microphones that are on set whenever they're out there? And... Also how wait, can wait. Of the snow... let me,
2: let, me, let me answer your first question okay so <laughs> I've never recorded sound in snow but I would imagine the sound of falling snow is quiet enough that it, it shouldn't make any sort of white noise or low level noise but if anyone here has recorded uh, in a snow storm or just in a snowfall, please let us know I mean perhaps there is a, a large amount of sound uh, but I, I haven't experienced it. Uh um,
1: well, I mean, like the sound that the snow that's already been accumulated does yes. that affect it,
2: yes, so to answer that, I would imagine it offers some cushion. I think you might have used the word cushion or it it offers some sort of maybe dampening of the sound, so uh, if anything, it would just be less reverberant, you know it would it would mm. absorb um reverberant sound, but um, yeah, I don't think they would have to uh compensate with uh Increasing the gain or the volume on the mics. But I don't know. Maybe there is some background sound. That's the best oh, I can answer interesting. for now.
1: And how come the, I, I couldn't, I know this is a silly thought, but how come none of the snow fell into the lens of the camera? Is there like an umbrella on top of the camera to protect it from snowfall?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, what's called a mat box, uh, which is uh, sort of, imagine sort of like barn doors. That's what they call them when, when you have it on a big, uh, studio light. It's sort of like opening and closing a barn door or a hood, you know, or both, you know. So you have sort of an enclosure uh, surrounding the lens, which is, I think, primarily used for blocking uh, light, uh, which would create a lens flare. Like if a light strikes the lens at a certain angle, there's a huge lens flare. But you have this matte box to sort of uh, flag off any uh, light from hitting the lens. And uh, this would obviously also block off uh, snow from falling directly into the lens. If it were particularly windy, you know, maybe when they're shooting, you might get some snow hitting the lens, but uh, <laughs> I think it's protected enough by this uh, mat box.
1: Oh, okay.
2: So we're also dancing around sort of this crisp plot line. You know, again, we said there's not really like an ABC separated plot. This is all happening sort of in tandem. Or not even necessarily in tandem, but just in order. It's all sort of following the same plot. And uh, there is a scene that happens around here where Chris is trying to clear things up for Ed. Actually, Ed asks him uh, a couple of different competing ideas. He says, he's reading a quote, "'The greatest danger to the American Republic comes from the omnipotence of the majority.'" And uh, Chris identifies this quote, it's de Tocqueville, who also, uh, as we <laughs> were talking about before recording this episode, uh, de Tocqueville is the author of Democracy in America, you know, the, I guess the text that this episode takes the, its title from. So, the greatest danger to the American Republic comes from the omnipotence of the majority, but also, a quote from Thoreau, any man more right than his neighbors constitutes a majority of one. And uh, Chris, you know, identifies civil disobedience. You know, the idea of these conflicting philosophies confuses Ed. But uh, answering his question, Chris says, "Well, they're both right." You know, so that's sort of the interesting dichotomy. Again, we talk about Joel and Maggie's conflict, their polarizing views, but that's the idea. It's like there's two sides to this uh, this coin that we call America.
1: Yeah, so Ed has stumbled into the moral quarry of American politics. There's only really two parties. There's only two <laughs> yeah. beliefs right there. Uh, and they're diametrically opposed. And they are both coincidentally both right and coincidentally both wrong at the same time. And uh, Really, this question can only be answered by Ed's own experiences in life as many times The way that we vote in real life can only be explained by our past experiences and actions. That's true in many ways. In fact, viewpoints can also be distorted in the same manner. Like one person may say that this individual is stubborn and another individual will say, no, he's just holding his ground. He's being brave. It's different. They both mean the same thing. He's not moving forward. But the way you view it is entirely different. So in this regard... It's whichever way Ed decides to view it. If he wants to look at it from this way, then that viewpoint will be right. If he wants to look at it from that viewpoint, it will also be correct. So it's up to Ed to decide.
2: Yeah, it's a very good point. It's sort of like the perspective you take just because, you know, something appears one way. You can have your own perspective on it, you know, and that's uh, the beauty of your decision, you know, your vote. And I think it's in this scene, it's definitely in the Chris-Ed plotline, where we learn, if you haven't guessed it yet, you know, Chris is very excited about this election, but he is a convicted felon, so he's not able to vote. Uh, Ed asks Chris, you know, who are you going to vote for? And what does Chris say?
1: Oh, Chris says that on the air, like while he's working for K-Bear, he's neutral. But as a person... He can't vote at all as a convicted felon. It's a lot of attention to detail because I looked it up. And Alaska does indeed require probation to be completed in order to vote. And Chris says that he bailed on probation. Like he was on it, but then he just decided not to complete it. Some states allow you to vote even while you're still on probation. But Alaska's not one of them.
2: Well, I mean, in the 90s, was, this, uh, was it common that a convicted felon could vote? I actually don't know.
1: I was looking at current law. Currently, Chris still wouldn't be able to vote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in Alaska, right? Yeah, in Alaska.
2: I feel like it was uh, definitely not a right that a convicted felon had, you know, the right to vote. Uh, definitely at least at this moment in time in the 90s. And yeah, that's interesting. I don't know, we were talking about this just kind of recently, which is funny. I I remember in our chat, I was like, yeah, this is going to come up in the episode, Democracy in America. (laughs) Yeah, we were talking about
1: which candidate in the Democratic Party was supporting convicted felons uh, voting (laughs) rights. And there's only one candidate that supports it. And then most of the Democratic field says only after you have been through jail can you vote.
2: Unfortunately for Chris, you know, he's even though he served his time, he still does not have the right to vote.
1: I like that Chris is really into democracy. He's really yeah. into democracy in action. And I find that there are, at least to my personal experience, the people that come into America are the ones that are most excited about voting. Like immigrants, whenever they become Americans, yeah, are very excited about voting. Because as Ed later realizes in the episode, many places still live in an authoritarian regime or an autocratic, yeah. no votes taken, it's simply their way. So I like that Chris, who's had this opportunity removed from him, the ability to vote, he's actually encouraging others to take up arms and wants them to go vote.
2: Yeah, and and sort of there's also the factor too, uh, you're, you mentioned that outsiders uh, seem to be more excited maybe or, or take more pride in some cases with the authority to vote. You know, it's possibly also that, you know, if you're born into it, You kind of take it for granted, whereas uh, someone who has immigrated to the United States, it's something that they fought for for a long time, to have this privilege and to have this right. And it's something that they believed in and that they wanted, that was like true to their ambitions, and they've achieved it. And so they're so proud of that, and that's uh, partially why maybe they want to vote. And uh, alternatively, if it's something that you had and maybe you took for granted, like Chris. Uh, and you lose that power. You understand uh, its beauty, its magnitude. You know its importance. That's why perhaps he wants to inspire others. You know, if you got it, use it. You know, don't uh, sleep on that privilege that uh, you know Chris ha- has lost.
1: Exactly. There's a great joke from Maria Banford what she says. There is a few phrases in English that you can only learn after you've been here for a few hundred years. Like, why vote? Who cares? It doesn't even matter. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's pretty great. Yeah, that's, the, that's what we're all boiling down to, I guess. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's what Chris is trying to not do.
2: <laughs> well, all right. So what are we going to get to next? Uh, let's go to the town hall. Yeah, so as we said before, Ruth Ann is sort of the moderator of this town hall. We have Holling sitting uh, across from Edna. You know, they each have their sort of like name placard uh, in front of them and a glass of water answering questions. I can't really remember what happens in this scene. I think Chris stands up and gives a quick uh, sort of haiku uh, to sort of set the stage. He says... <laughs> On a withered branch, a crow has alighted. Nightfall in autumn, and then he sits back down. Yeah, what did you make of this uh, town hall?
1: That is a quick pivot to how much you love America. Like, come on, hauling! That's such an easy toss-up, man. Like, you gotta, you, like, off the top of my head, this is that you transition to be a politician, Chris? That is a wonderful poem from a wonderful American poem and we need more of that in our country right now what you just said right here that is applicable to our little town of Sicily and that is why you should vote for me because I will make sure that all of the ideas that are in that poem will come true in our little place right there man Charles, easy.
2: Charles are you running for mayor of Sicily right
1: now <laughs> I'm just saying that Holling got a toss-up had an easy alley-oop he just didn't do it
2: yeah I mean Holling could have easily won this election but he uh, lost it Pretty bad, right? We'll oh, get no, to the no, this. no, no. only lost by eight votes. Oh, Let's get to the election results down the line. But okay, here in this scene. Wait, who was the poet uh, for that poem? Do you know? No, uh, we can cut this out. But was it an American poet or not? I don't know. I, I, that, but that's the
1: thing; it doesn't matter. You
2: just say it's an American <laughs> poet. Like, can you say the poem to me one more time so I can type it into Google? Okay. On a withered branch, a crow has alighted. Nightfall Alighted? and autumn. Alighted, one word. Nightfall and autumn.
1: Okay. It auto-completes the settled, but yeah.
2: Could be a translation, which means it's not an, uh, not an American. Oh, no,
1: he says it. He says it. It's from Bash. Oh, uh, Basho. It's Japanese. Matsuo Basho.
2: Yeah, so what else happens in this town hall? There's uh, the quote we mentioned before when Ann tells uh the person in the audience that's a stupid question sit back down when he when he brings up you know the stop sign as an example of jeffersonian or hamiltonian democracy in action uh a a quick note are there any kids in this scene you know we talked about pew leaning kid a lot in the first season and maybe a little bit in the second season but where's our pew leaning kid no,
1: I don't think there's any kids in that scene.
2: Yeah, that makes sense, I guess, because they're you know not of voting age, so they wouldn't have a re- <laughs> wouldn't have a hey, huge reason to come. But no, no, it's never too early to become <laughs> an informed electorate. I like that. Very true, and I think uh, Chris would agree with that.
1: <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, you were gonna say like any other interesting things. Uh, yeah. There is one interesting thing: Maurice gets up and leaves.
2: Yeah. He has a very interesting outburst, uh, in this scene. I wrote in my notes, you know, I wrote it down because I didn't exactly remember how the outcome was, you know, with Maurice. It's kind of confusing in this scene. He gets up and he says, you know, hold on, this is all like going too fast or or something. He says, I don't exactly remember the quote, but it's kind of cryptic, and he runs out, right?
1: Yeah, it's a very cryptic quote, and I thought they were going to stop it right there, but they kind of just kept going with the town yeah, hall debate. It is,
2: it is very kind of weird, because it's like he just has a quick outburst that interrupts everything, and then he leaves, and then it keeps going. Well, the outcome is the next scene, right? So the next scene is Maurice and Edna are meeting, I think, at Edna's house, right?
1: Yeah, it's nighttime and it's snowing again, actually.
2: Yeah, some more of that uh genuine real snow.
1: <laughs> yeah, and Maurice was pontificating on the moment, saying how he didn't even know that they were neighbors. And it wasn't until she brought out her gun to I presumably threaten him to not encroach <laughs> yeah. onto her property that he realized that she was his neighbor and he knew he could respect her. He was like, okay. We're going to yeah. be good neighbors. yeah. But he also talks about how the addition of the stop sign was going to make more of a suburb land in Alaska. Like the reason that they even came to Alaska in the first place was because it was wild. It had yeah. no regulations. It was every man for himself. You could breed large, live large, and it took big men to tame big land. But the moment you add a stop sign is... Where the genie's gotten out of the bottle and it's eventually going to lead to eh, I guess the best way to describe it would be the state of Ohio, maybe? I don't know. Like what's the, <laughs> Wait, the a good analogy? Ohio? Like a suburb area, like a you know, <laughs>
2: middle America. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a slippery slope, you know, genie out of the bottle, as you said. That's the quote that Maurice uses. And you're right, you know, he came to Alaska because it was unfettered wilderness, you know, sort of like clay in his hands. He could do whatever he wanted with it. And it's not that Maurice necessarily fears this expansion. You know, he believes in Alaska to be, you know, the next big thing. Uh, But I I think what he's getting at is... You know, too much government is what is scaring Maurice, too much uh, regulation. And, uh, you know, once you give the mayor the power to erect a stop sign, you know, there's going to be a lot more reckoning, I guess, afterwards is what he's afraid of.
1: I think that's, uh, I'm not disagreeing with your take on that. I just think that a different take is that Maurice just doesn't want any change to happen whatsoever in Alaska.
2: I don't like, know, though, because in previous episodes, he's wanted to build resorts. He's wanted to true. make some change. to cut you're off right. because I didn't mean to cut you off because maybe you do have uh, what, what were you going to say?: uh, More so that,
1: like, I'm not entirely too sure if he's against the idea of, quote unquote, "the government coming down to regulate right. the place.? Because uh-huh. um, it's not necessarily a government regulation. That happens whenever suburbs are being built and zoning laws are being enacted. That's more of a community organization that's happening right there, Um, less so than the government. So I think that he's afraid that it's going to become, I guess, more commercial. But what you just said also runs counterintuitive to what commercial would be.
2: Yeah, it's a very interesting distinction in this scene because it's like... You know, we've seen Maurice before say that he wants to bring resorts again, like golf courses, uh, you know, hotels, things like that, attractions, you know. But also in this scene, he's uh, realizing his admiration for uh, the wildness of this area and its um, untouched sort of landscape that exists in Alaska. So there's those sort of two conflicting approaches, you know, that Maurice has demonstrated in the past and in this episode. And what is that saying in this episode, you know, currently? It it's an it's an interesting sort of duality in his character. Perhaps, you know, as I said, it's, you know, he's afraid of You know, you're saying afraid of change. I'm saying afraid of government. I think there's sort of uh, an interesting stew going on there. Uh, But there's a lot to take in.
1: Yeah, and I like that Edna asked Maurice, do you want me to drop out? And Maurice says, at the beginning I wanted you to, but this has already happened. Like, now that you've introduced that concept to the townsfolks, they're going to want what's quote-unquote rightfully theirs. They're going to want their own whatever stop sign equivalent will be on their own uh, driveways. So yeah. with that in mind, the next two, four, I don't know how often mayoral races are ran <laughs> in Sicily, Alaska. Let's assume yeah. four. the next four years, it's going to be someone that's going to be running even further on that position, promising the towns focus Sicily, something even further.
2: So coming up after this is election day in Sicily. We have, again, we said like Maggie and Joel are setting up the polling station Chris enters. He's clean-shaven, short hair in a suit, you know. Uh he's he's very professional here. I think Ruth Ann says something like the return of the prodigal voter, you know. <laughs> she she makes it almost biblical. This is I think Chris is uh likened to Jesus Christ a lot in this uh series because there is in a a past episode I think burning down the house when he's building the trebuchet, he's walking down the street. We didn't talk about this, so I'm bringing it up uh, now in this episode. Uh, but in uh, the past episode, he's he's walking down the street with uh, a giant sort of like log in tow, like on his back, dragging it across the street. And he's got uh, a train of children following him. He just seems sort of like Jesus, like carrying the cross on his back, right?
1: Hmm. I did not catch that whatsoever. <laughs> Sorry,
2: I'm bringing it up just now. But I think <laughs> no, there's a of lot of Christian imagery happening I think right. in the past and two episodes.
1: I think you're right. And unfortunately, I don't have a lot of expertise on this. I didn't go to uh, Catholic school growing yeah. up. I don't know a lot about Catholicism. So I, I do know that allusion, know what you're talking about. I just okay. didn't catch it. but. Yeah, I, I guess it could be that he is a Jesus Christ uh, figure. I, At least I'm sorry, in, in I just don't this, know a lot like about moment.
2: Jesus Christ. <laughs> Same. Yeah, I don't know why I'm bringing it up, you know, but uh, uh, no, yeah. At least in these uh, episode 14 and 15, you know, it feels like there's some imagery going on there. Because I, I some know there, reason. Are, there are
1: characteristics <laughs> of Jesus Christ. I just don't want to mischaracterize them. i putting my own spin on it.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, so, you know, that's what's going on with this election day. What else is happening? Should we just get to the results here?
1: Yeah. So we get to the el- results, which is Chris, he's still in a suit, by the way. I kind of like that. I respect yeah. the person that wears a suit for the rest of the day and just doesn't take it <laughs> off. I, I kind of do the same. Like, if I had to wear a suit for something, i just keep it on for the rest of the day. Yeah. But he's in K-Bear, and he's with Ed, who is going to be his, his correspondent, I believe.
2: Yeah, they're they're gonna announce the results. So it turns
1: out that Holling loses to Edna by eight slim votes.
2: Yeah, two hundred and forty-seven votes for Holling, and uh, two hundred and fifty-five votes for Edna Hancock. Which, uh, if we're assuming that the population of Sicily is still eight hundred and thirty-nine, that's about like sixty percent of Sicily voted. And I think later we hear from a quote that it was an 87 percent voter turnout, meaning you know, people who are of age and able to vote. 87 percent of uh, of those individuals came out to vote. That seems pretty high, right? For voter turnout?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I was just checking Almost your math on 90%. that. 90 percent. And yeah, yeah that's uh, normally high voter turnout. Good job, citizens of Sicily, doing your uh,
2: doing your American duty. Yeah. And uh, I really like uh, what Chris says to Ed whenever they're off air.
0: Ed, we've just witnessed a peaceful transition in government. Do you realize how miraculous that is?
1: I love that. Uh, I think there is a West Wing quote where they say, we overthrow the government every four years in a fire station and there's not a soldier in sight.
0: It's the same exact thing
1: as Chris where he's saying, we're witnessing... Just a peaceful transfer of power. There was yeah. no bloodshed being involved. Just one person simply gives the metaphorical crown to the other person, and then it's their turn to lead.
2: Yeah, it sounds very simple. It's a very simple act, but uh, it's incredibly profound because, you know, as we've learned from history and uh, still in some places uh, today in the world, uh, it's not such a peaceful uh, transition. I also want to bring up, uh, I forgot, during this Election Day montage, Chris uh, is also talking on uh, on air, and he relates the story of his Uncle Bauer, who we've heard of uh, in, in past episodes. But what is it? He's on a fishing trip early in the morning with his uncle, and they have to cut their lines because uh, Uncle Bauer immediately realizes that it's Election Day, and they got to go. They got to go vote. It was what was it? The election of Nixon versus Nixon versus McGovern. Obviously, uh, we know that Nixon won the election, but Uncle Bauer voted for McGovern, and his remark uh, after voting was, uh, "You know, well, I guess I showed him, you know?" So <laughs> it, it's, it's funny, but uh, really, I think this scene sort of, uh, this quote, rather sort of demonstrates the empowerment. Uh, of uh, your right to vote. You know, in a way, your vote is uh, retaliation against uh, someone maybe you don't like. You know, Uncle Bauer served in Vietnam, apparently, and he hated Nixon. Yeah.
1: Do you know much about Nixon versus McGovern?
2: Uh, Give us a little uh, recap.
1: So McGovern ran on the campaign saying that he was going to pull out of the Vietnam War. McGovern also was what, modern day people would say, uh, spoiler, he, at the time, the Democratic Party had many nominations coming. I think Hubert Humphrey was one of them. And because the Democrats could not settle on one candidate, the nomination fell to McGovern. And what happened was that Nixon cleaned his clock in the election. I think he, gosh, I think that Nixon won with 61% of the vote, and McGovern won with 37% of the vote. Wow. it's a beatdown right there. (laughs) But that was also the election in which Nixon was spying on the Democratic National Convention. That's what led to Watergate.
2: (laughs) Wow. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the...
1: Yeah, and it, I like that it shows that in the context of the show, they were saying that even though McGovern had no chance of winning, he still voted for him because he right. agreed with the policies.
2: Yeah, and uh, you know, it's just an example of saying like, oh, my vote's not going to matter. It's not going to change anything. Well, this is the argument that says, even <laughs> at the very least, your vote is a middle finger to uh, the system that maybe you feel is betraying you. You know, so at the very least, this is your only way to demonstrate your power.
1: Yeah, well, even in this episode, there was only a eight-vote difference between yeah. Edna and Holling. Like, that is That's incredibly incredible. slim margins. Every vote mattered right there.
2: Exactly. Well, later we get sort of a concession speech from Holling in the Brick. He is, you know, back to working at the Brick, obviously, and he's... Not in the best of spirits. He's delivering some food to patrons. No one really wants to pipe up because essentially what's happened is all of his friends, uh, or, you know, enough of his friends, voted against him. Uh, And they're sitting there in the bar now. They're receiving food, his food. Uh, But he has to sort of break the ice. And uh, this is what I call his concession speech. He says, you know, basically... Nobody died. It was an election. I lost. And uh, let's hear some music from the jukebox. You know, that's the—that's his. Uh, <laughs> that's the way he's going out. And
1: he tells Edna, "If you had another week, probably could have whipped those eight votes."
2: Yeah, that's pretty cool. I like that uh, little bit of dialogue. When he returns to the bar, Edna enters. He offers to buy her a drink and is congratulatory. You know which is really nice, and he still, you know, keeps some of the fight in him. He says, what, it's like, if I had another week, I would have wiped the floor with you. And uh, she responds, like, hell. But I really like the smirk that Hauling gives to Edna in this scene, because it suggests, you know, there's still some tenacity and some fight inside Hauling, but uh, a little bit of... uh, Congratulations, and uh, sort of like he's looking at a peer now. I don't know. It feels like, at least after this, the very first scene when I described Holling's treatment of Edna, his sort of relationship, has certainly changed. You know, it seems like maybe he hates her, but also uh, at least maybe she seems less like an outsider, a little closer to him at this point.
1: I hope that Edna returns in the future. I, I don't know if she does, but I think she's a pretty good character.
2: You know, this is a very memorable episode. I think that she's going to return, but I honestly can't remember. She may not. But she's the mayor now, so why wouldn't she return, right?
1: That's what I was thinking, too. Because she is the mayor now, I think that that brings up all sorts of fun plot lines that could happen. Because previously, if they wanted to enact like a large governmental change, like local government change... They would go to Hauling. He was the mayor. And Holling was already an established character and he had his own agendas. So it would have just seemed like it was um, like another mischaracterization of Holling. But because they like, no longer have to worry about that, they can use Edna, who is not well established as a character right now. We don't know everything about her. Yeah, it would. It's very fun to go up against that to see how the episode will play out.
2: Yeah, like, Hauling's already established. There's no need to, like, bring the politics in. We don't need to, like, make something happen just so we could uh, explore Hauling. He's there already. But uh, if we want to uh, get into Edna's character, then we bring in the local government, you know? So that that's another uh, avenue, not only for government, but for Edna's character, you know? Oh, there's a weird plot line with uh, Shelley, maybe in two or three scenes. She's sort of turned on very attracted by hollings uh political ambition i guess
1: i think I, she's just attracted to ambition in general not necessarily that because it was political
2: yeah just sort of like his position of power and ambition mm-hmm. uh it's a bit throwaway i uh, obviously we forgot about it <laughs> until <laughs> this moment but uh
1: yeah it is only it's uh, very short scenes
2: Let's see Ed also recalls uh you know losing his virginity comparing that to this moment of uh voting and how yeah. it you know these are moments in your life when you feel like uh, you become an adult perhaps you know this is sort of Ed's bar mitzvah in a sort
1: mm-hmm. yeah call back to light feather which i thought would never come back again
2: even in then. Yeah even in just, like, a a cursory mention.
1: Yeah, and he mentions that, like, it felt even bigger than that, possibly because, I mean, if I overanalyzed it, this is the one in which it affects the most people? Yeah. Like, the transaction... Okay, that's that's the wrong word to use. Okay. (laughs) The interaction between Ed and Lightfeather was between them, and yes, it did turn Ed into an adult. Uh, This one is more, like, for the civilization that they live in
2: the community. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think Ed even says that it was like, it was personal between him and light feather, but this act is, uh, feels more communal, you know, it's uh, it's bigger, you know? So that makes a lot of sense, I guess, in, in that context, before we toss to our guest, I would like to read a quote. Chris reads on air. It's a quote from Walt Whitman. The genius of the United States is not best or most in its executives or legislators, nor in its ambassadors or authors, or colleges or churches or parlors, nor even in its newspapers or inventors, but always most in the common people.
1: That's a great poem. Government derives its power
2: from the people. So we mentioned at the top of this podcast that we like to bring on a guest every episode, someone who has never seen... The show before get their opinion of uh, the series as a whole. From one episode, our guest this episode is my good friend Ben. He is a writer, a director, a filmmaker. We were friends since college. I feel like I have probably shown him this show in college. I don't know if he remembers it, but I do remember uh, telling him that he reminded me of of Chris in this episode. Uh, So let's see what Ben has to say about this episode
0: all right so uh the episode started really a uh, strong teaser we're going to see some sort of mayoral contest happening here and uh, I'm, I'm I'm watching this intro and we got this this moose character and i'm I'm really excited to see where they go with him because he's he's obviously he knows his way around town he you see him he's navigating the streets so I'm guessing he's some kind of cop uh, like a Yeah, I think he's probably some kind of moose police. Well, this is going to be cool. I'm excited. All right, so I'm six minutes in, and I'm learning about this subplot where the elderly um, bartender mayor is romantically involved with the underaged uh, uh, bar matron. And, I, you know, yikes, this looks like a job for moose cop. So here's a question for uh, the host, because I, I imagine you guys do a lot of kind of deep dives and, you know, really hardcore investigation into the show. Uh, how much of the show is shot on location? How much of it is in the studio? It looks like a lot of on location. And then it's a fact, like, what, what, how, how much of the snow is real? Is this, is this all fake snow? Or are they shooting during winter months so there's snow in the background and then just... Uh, piping in snow for the uh, the foreground element to, to to keep that to keep the atmospheric. Uh, what's going on? What's going on with the snow and northern exposure? And speaking of snow, what's up with this moment at 10 minutes and 3 seconds? Uh, I know this isn't a video cast, uh, but you know I, I assume everybody's following along at home. So 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 cue up 10 minutes and 3 seconds and. And just just keep an eye on she's she's in the foreground this this Mayoral challenger I forgot her name's, uh she's during the frame her her, her right shoulder that we're looking over just keep keep an eye on there you're gonna want to see you're gonna want to see the way that snow interacts with with this lady's shoulder. I'm a big fan of of Ruth Ann. Uh, we have a scene here where she's extorting, um the 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 snobbish doctor, um and I get I hope we get to see a lot more of Ruth Ann. I hope that. The moose cop kind of will turn the blind eye to this this moment of extortion because I don't want to see Ruth Ann locked away. I really hope we get to see a lot more of her. All right, so uh, finished the episode. Loved it. Um, I, I've never been exposed to this uh, show uh, before, which is, is you know so the name of the podcast. is kind of a, a misnomer because not, you're not overexposing me. You're just exposing me for the first time. I mean, the, it seems like you could have just been a little more Pat with that Just a little more Straightforward I think you guys Got fancy But that's okay uh, Great show um, it's, it's a You know It's it's, it's a kind of Sorkin-esque Where it's very You know uh, uh, Thoughtful And there's a lot Of people saying Stuff like Do you realize And then Kind of expounding There's a lot of Expounding In the show uh, or You know That's what I'm, that's what I'm Taking um, I think that Our, our lovers Are going to get Together In what Three episodes From now That's my That's my Prediction Is that Uh They were pretty flirty. I mean, he's buying her dinner. I think there's... You can't no more than three episodes before these guys are... uh, Something's happening there. I'll definitely uh, tune back in, though, to, to see what happens with Moose Cop. Yeah.
1: Okay, that was Ben that we just exposed to Northern Exposure. And I got to say, Ben, we overexpose ourselves. You just get regular exposed. But we do the over part.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we could also say that the over part uh, in the title of our podcast is for overanalyzing, which is what we do. And then exposure is what they do. They get exposed.
1: We got to stop. We got to stop. Okay, <laughs> there's got to be a better verb we can use.
2: <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't, you know, it makes sense, but we have to explain it, I guess. Otherwise, I guess we could just force Ben to watch more episodes of the show and then it would really be the Overexposure Ben podcast.
1: Mm, Yeah, that's a good experiment right there. So right off the bat, uh, (laughs) he introduced a new character uh, that me and you are not familiar with, Cop Moose.
2: The the Moose Cop, the Moose Policeman person? Uh, Yeah, so I think other guests in the past have been very... I guess you could say infatuated with the moose in the opening credits, and curious about uh, you know what this moose's involvement with the show at large might be. And I think we've said it on the podcast before. Unfortunately, this moose only—I think he only actually appears in one episode, season one, episode four, "Dream Schemes and Putting Greens." So, Ben, if you liked it, go back to the first season and check him out. He he has a little cameo at the very end. Um but yeah isn't that surprising I mean, I guess we've talked about this time and time again on the podcast but yeah the the moose that's in the opening credits has no real place in the show I guess
1: yeah you know I'm more surprised i guess don't bring up the dogs
2: that dogs? are just wandering the street. Yeah. Well, there are, are there dogs. They're not dogs in the opening credits, but there are dogs throughout the entire show, right? Throughout the entire
1: show, and definitely in this episode. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. episode had like I, I believe two dogs in the beginning sequence just running down the street. <laughs> Like just hauling it,
2: Charles. I guess you know you're the, you're a big dog lover, so I guess like it's it's super obvious to you. Maybe it uh, flies Do you under not the radar. For, no, no, yeah, it's definitely obvious for me. But for <laughs> oh. <laughs> for the average viewer, maybe they're less uh, inclined to notice mm. if it's not shown to them in the opening credits. But uh no, sorry, Ben. Um I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast, Charles, but uh the moose. In Northern Exposure, in the opening title, has a name. Yeah, his name is Morty the Moose, and he passed away in 94, which means he died before the end of the show. So, yeah, he's not going to come back in one of the later seasons, anything like that. I found, just to confirm this, I found it's an article in the Los Angeles Times. The title is, Morty the Moose of TV's Northern Exposure Dies. It was January 9th, 1994. I don't know the exact uh, date and time of death, but the article does say it was later found that a cobalt and copper deficiency in the diet of uh, Morty uh, is what led to his death. So they're not really treating this moose properly.
1: Wait, so... It died from a, a lack of proper diet.
2: The article says that's what led to its death. So I don't know if it was uh, super direct, but there is some sort of correlation between uh, its lacking nutrition and uh, it passing away.
1: Oh man, that's a it's a damn shame. It really is. Yeah. Poor well, Morty
2: never came back for the last season.
1: Well, it's 2020 now. We can we can digitally insert him right back in, like Star Wars.
2: <laughs> yeah, for uh, season seven, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. If they ever do either. that yeah. revival, <laughs> uh, yeah, who knows? Um, what else does Ben say? He brings up the question of what exactly, you know, how much of the show is shot on location, how much is shot in a studio. I can't say a hundred percent, but I am um, pretty certain from what I've read in the Northern Exposure book and just uh, online that, to my surprise, actually, a lot of the interiors, including the brick, is on a soundstage. It's a it's a set. Um, the exteriors, like whenever they're walking down main street, that's all shot in, uh, Rosling, Washington. So, you know, real exteriors, all the interiors, you know, Joel's cabin. I think we were talking about in the first season. I was actually surprised to realize, wait, this is all a set. This is not a real <laughs> location, but, um, yeah, all the interiors, uh, I believe are on set.
1: Yeah. I, I don't think you would know the answer to this and I don't know if we've ever answered this in a pod, but is there a reason they filmed in Washington and not in Alaska? Like just uh, you know, actually have it be filmed there.
2: I would assume it's just closer to bigger cities. Um, That's what I assume too. Yeah, yeah, when you're when you're closer to civilization, you know, you have more amenities, and also like probably more access to, um, film workers at the time. You know, probably aren't. Uh, there's probably not a lot of film work up in Alaska. So if you need to crew up down there, or maybe get some um, cameras or equipment from rental houses, you know, there's probably something nearby like Seattle. You know, I imagine a lot of uh. A lot of their bigger draws came from Seattle. Ben also brings up uh, the question, how much of the snow here is real? And uh, yes, it's true. This episode was shot during, you know, what would be a wintry month in the Pacific Northwest. It was shot february twenty fourth, nineteen ninety two. So I guess not exactly winter, but, you know, I guess the you know, the groundhog maybe saw his shadow you know <laughs> that year. Uh, I would assume it's still maybe snowing up up there uh, at that time of year,
1: yeah. And Ben also mentions that there's a strange occurrence at what was the timestamp? Ten minutes and three seconds?
2: Yeah. Uh, and we went back. We watched this little moment. And um what Ben is pointing out, if if you watch at home, If you look at uh, Edna's shoulder, there is sort of what appears to be like a clump of snow that lands on her shoulder. So it's not an even disbursement as snow might fall. From the sky.
1: But I would assume that came from the roof. They're right underneath the roof when they're filming that scene. So probably just a a clump of it just fell down onto her.
2: That's very possible. Yeah. They're standing kind of close to the building, uh, Edna's house, and snow could come down in a clump like that. What's also possible is something that Ben mentioned uh, sort of the idea of a foreground element of snow to sort of match the ambient amount of snow that's happening maybe in real life. So whenever they're bringing the camera closer for close-ups, for example, the shot that Ben is, uh, mentioning, pointing out is, uh, sort of a close-ish shot on, uh, hauling, but it's over Edna's shoulder. So the camera's right next to her shoulder. So, uh, for these sort of closer, tighter shots, maybe there's someone on set or some sort of rig that, uh, you know, disperses snow maybe more frequently to match sort of the background. So this is the foreground element of snow. So there could be someone shaking like a canister of snow or sprinkling snow, and maybe it came out as a clump mm. and landed on Edna's shoulder. I think that's what ben is, uh, ben is getting at here.
1: Okay. Well, they could also be shaking uh, shaped coconut flakes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It looked like I, I was fooled by it. I thought it was pretty uh, realistic snow. I, I really want to say that there's some real snow in this episode.
1: Well, that would just mean that special effects is doing a good job.
2: And maybe they fooled me, but I don't know i I think it looks uh, pretty real, but I guess it's still up for debate. You know. Ben is also a big fan of Ruth Ann. I think we talked about it in this season. I feel like Ruth Ann is actually finally becoming a real character. She was uh, not really um, focused on too much in the first season or the second season. She didn't really get a lot of screen time uh, in those seasons, but she's really starting to have some pretty cool um, plots this episode. Not the most heavily featured Ruthann episode, but still, I'm glad that she's sort of coming into her own. And the last little bit, I guess we can touch on with Ben's commentary is uh, the fact that this show, the sort of the dialogue, the the nature of dialogue in this show, you know, there, there's lots of phrases like, do you realize and, you know, expounding, I think that's, um, that's a pretty apt um, observation. You know, and that's something I really like about Northern Exposure, how someone will always pose a question or uh, maybe go a little deeper on a topic. Typically, Joel will say things like, you know, what do you think about, I'm thinking about uh, in the episode, Our Tribe. There's a great soundbite where Joel asks Ed, you know, what does belonging to a tribe mean to you? You know, he asks everybody in the episode. There's another episode, uh, A Hunting We Will Go, where basically his whole plot line is just asking every character. What, is your, what are your thoughts on hunting? You know, so it's a lot of question and opening the floor for that.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of dialogue that is predominantly just for expository purposes so that you can open up a whole chain of dialogue related to that, and I agree. That's a really nifty observation that I don't think uh, we even pick up on that much, like how much they're setting up the ball to be
2: teed or like yeah. being
1: alley-ooped to the next uh, goalpost.
2: Yeah. It's just a pretty good... Uh, you know, Ben is noticing sort of the cogs at work here in, in the screenwriting or, I guess, teleplay. Well, that does it for episode 15. Next episode is the 16th episode of season three. It's called Three Amigos. Charles, any predictions?
1: Yeah, does Martin Short, Chevy Jason, Steve Martin come?
2: <laughs> uh, I don't know, probably not, but I don't wouldn't think that, that yeah, be don't a great episode? That. All right, Charles. Well, see you next week. See you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Ben for being our guest analyst today. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.